Lone Star 187 is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Case file 43, Jenna Verhollen. We're back. Hi, y'all. Good lord, Brittany, what happened to your voice? Uh, I came down with a virus recently. What virus did you come down with? Testicles? Oh, shut up. Besides, I'm better now, and we've got a show to do. Well, I'm Carrie. I'm Brittany. And, and we are Lone Star 187. So where are we this week? Well, this week we're going to Bryan, Texas. Bryan, Texas is the county seat of Brazos County, located in the heart of the Brazos Valley. It is the site of the Brazos Valley Museum of Natural History and is just north of College Station. Fun fact, the town's slogan is The Good Life, Texas Style. And it's in Bryan, Texas that we meet a young woman by the name of Jenna Verhollen. In 2008... 20-year-old Jenna was a freshman at Blinn Community College in Bryan, located about 10 minutes away from Texas A&M. According to an article in the Eagle, she was in the legal assistant program and had a job at Wings and More, which is like a restaurant. What did they serve? Uh, burgers. Oh. But it's located in College Station. Those close to Jenna say that she was the type of person who got along with everyone, had a loving soul, and had a bright future ahead of her. Also attending Blinn was Jenna's boyfriend, Spencer Hood. He and Jenna had been high school sweethearts, went to prom together, and Jenna's family said that they felt Spencer was the love of her life. Both Spencer and Jenna had their own apartments at the Autumn Woods Apartments nearby Blinn. On Thursday, April 9, 2008, around 10 a.m., Spencer finished up his morning classes. He walked over to Jenna's apartment, reportedly to pick up a book that he had left there. When he arrived, he noticed that the door was unlocked. Spencer went inside, where he found Jenna lying unresponsive on the floor of her bedroom. He immediately ran over to a neighbor and had him call 911. The neighbor told the dispatcher, quote, She's just laying on the ground. She's unconscious and she's not breathing. End quote. When the operator asks, quote, Can you touch her and see if she's warm to the touch? End quote. You can hear Spencer in the back yell out, She's cold! And cry out, Oh my God! And my heart absolutely broke when I heard that in the 911 call. And I mean, he just found the love of his life, and she's cold to the touch and not responding, so... Well, the paramedics arrive, but there was nothing that could be done, and Jennifer Holland was pronounced dead at the scene. The case was assigned to detectives Lance Matthews and Stephen Fry. They arrived at the scene but found next to nothing in the way of evidence. The only injuries they could find on her were a small bruise right above her left eye, and she had clamped down on her tongue with her teeth. Mm. There was no sign of forced entry, 
nor were there any signs of a robbery. Her purse was hanging on a hook right next to the door. Credit cards, cash, and keys were found to still be in the purse. There was also no sign of what could have happened to Jenna. The detectives noticed that there were no drugs or alcohol in the apartment and almost immediately ruled out suicide as a cause of death. During the autopsy, medical examiner Mark Krauss could not find any evidence that Jenna had been sexually assaulted, but did go on to say that, quote, the lack of genital injuries does not rule out a sexual assault, end quote. Something that he was able to find were small broken blood vessels in the whites of Jenna's eyes, known as petechial hemorrhages, which, if you didn't know, a petechial hemorrhage is a tiny pinpoint red mark in the eye that is a sign of asphyxia caused by some external means of obstructing the airways. They often indicate manual strangulation, hanging, or smothering. So basically what is happening is that there is increased pressure on the veins in the head where airways are obstructed and the tiny blood vessels in the eyes rupture. So this told Dr. Krause that he needed to look for signs of asphyxiation, right? Correct. And upon investigating, he found that Jenna's larynx was crushed. Oh, God. Yeah. So he concluded that her cause of death was strangulation and, quote, in great probability, manual strangulation by hands, end quote. And what makes a case like this so scary is how personal manual strangulation is. Like, you're literally watching the life fade from their eyes. Right. Wait, didn't you say that they only saw bruising above her eye? Uh, yes. There was bruising over her left eye, and she bit down on her tongue. Well, wouldn't strangling someone to death leave bruising on the throat? I'm glad you mentioned that, because I did look up if it's possible to strangle someone without leaving a mark. The FBI are watching you now. As if they weren't before. <laughs> anyway, I'm not sure exactly why they didn't show up on Jenna, um, unless maybe it didn't take long to strangle her to death, actually, and the blood didn't have an opportunity to cause bruising. Mm-hmm. That That's just a guess on my part. I don't know if that's actually what happened. But... So, with the findings of strangulation... And the fact that there was no sign of forced entry or robbery. It was likely that it was someone that she may have known. That would sound logical. So, of course, one of the first suspects would be... The boyfriend. That is correct. So, they looked into Spencer's background, and they discovered that throughout their relationship, Spencer and Jenna would often break up, date other people for a little while then make up and get back together. Mm-hmm. Typical on-again, off-again type of relationship. And all accounts indicated that at the time of Jenna's death, they were very much on-again. But detectives were curious if maybe this was a lover's spat gone wrong, so they called Spencer in for questioning. According to Spencer, after Jenna had gotten off work that night, they met at her apartment around 9.30 p.m. They studied together for about three hours or so. Then Spencer left to go back to his apartment. 
he said that once he got back to his apartment, he called to tell her goodnight before going to bed. Phone records did show that he did call her phone around 12.47 a.m. The detectives asked if he killed Jenna, to which Spencer responded, quote, absolutely not, end quote. Detectives interviewed some of Jenna's neighbors at the apartment complex, and during the night-slash-morning of the murder, there was a group of people playing sand volleyball near Jenna's apartment. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, this is an apartment complex that's primarily college students. Yeah. So they're out there, you know, drinking, having fun. Mm-hmm. Letting off some steam, basically. Well, several of the people there claimed to see a shirtless man coming from the direction of Jenna's apartment, seemingly upset, and talking to himself. Oh. Yes. The witnesses claimed that the shirtless man resembled a student who lived at the apartments named Sean Stevens. Detectives learned that in an earlier incident, Stevens had catcalled Jenna and shouted at her vulgarly from his upstairs balcony. It's also important to note that Jenna's apartment was in a direct line of sight from Sean's apartment. Because of that, he would have been able to see Jenna coming and going from her apartment. Naturally, this made Stevens a person of interest. So he was brought in for questioning. Uh, Stevens was described by detectives as being, quote, extremely nervous and literally shaking. Hmm. He denied being both the shirtless man seen coming from the apartment and Jenna's murderer. However, he was not able to recall exactly what he was doing at the time due to being extremely intoxicated that night. He claimed that on the night in question, he was so drunk that he couldn't tell who he was, where he was from, what he did. As long as he loves you? No, but nice Backstreet Boys reference. Okay, so... Right now, our suspects are the high school sweetheart and a drunken, possibly shirtless stalker, right? Correct. But wait, there's more. (laughs) So, Jenna's family and friends recalled an incident that occurred a couple of months before she died. Mm -hmm. One morning, Jenna got out of the shower to find the maintenance man just standing in her living room. Did she know that he was going to be there? No. He claimed that the apartment was unlocked, so he went in, thinking it was empty, and was going to work on some things. Couldn't he hear the water in the shower? Now, he claimed that he couldn't, but let me explain why I believe that's an entire load of frog crap. Okay. Now, I have never stayed in this particular complex... But in the ones that I have stayed in, if your neighbors flush their toilet, you can hear the pipes through the wall. I mean, even further than that, if your neighbors think about passing gas at 3 in the morning, you're going to hear it through the walls. So forgive me if I have a hard time believing that he couldn't hear water running in the same apartment that he was standing in. Creepy son of a bitch. My thoughts exactly. Anyway. 
The maintenance man was said to have gathered up his things and got out of there. This guy's name was Jeremy Rosser. He was a 27-year-old divorced father of two and had been working at the apartment complex for a little over a year. When detectives Fry and Matthews learned of this incident, they decided to conduct a little experiment. Mm -hmm. So, they went back to Jenner's apartment. One of them stood at the front door, Mm -hmm. while the other went into the bathroom, shut the bathroom door, and started the shower. And you are not going to believe this. The detective at the front door could actually hear water running in the bathroom. Oh my god. I know, I was shocked too. Coincidentally, one week after Jenna's death, Jeremy Rosser just stopped showing up to work. Autumn Woods Apartments eventually just said, You know what, if you won't come into work, we'll find somebody who will. And fired him, as they should have. Yeah. When police went to go talk to him, Jeremy was gone. He was nowhere to be found, and no one had heard from him. Not long after that, Spencer vanished as well. What? Yeah, the boyfriend. He just vanished. They couldn't find him. Oh my god. Well... Neither one of these guys are really helping their case at this point. And wouldn't you know it, Sean Stevens vanishes as well. So, with all three of our major suspects in the wind, this kind of puts detectives in a what-do-we-do-now type of mindset. So, they go back over the crime scene. Did these guys, like, know each other or something? I couldn't find an account that they did, but it was just a weird coincidence almost that all three of them were gone at the exact same time. Yeah, that's just a little bit too weird. Yeah, I know. Well, meanwhile, one of the forensic scientists find skin cells under Jenna's fingernails, matching two genetic profiles. Both were male, and one was a minor contributor and one was a major contributor, as described by Detective Matthews. Also, on the night of her death, Jenna was wearing a red t-shirt that read what looked like Finish the Drive in 05, which to me looked like a shirt from her high school, but that's not important at the moment, just an observation. Mm -hmm. I mentioned that it's a red t-shirt, Because investigators found a drop of blood on the collar of her shirt. Okay. On the carpet nearby where she was laying, two more drops of blood were found. Now, one of the drops on the carpet was identified as Jenna's. Mm -hmm. But one drop and the drop on the neck of her shirt matched the DNA found under Jenna's nails. So, she fought like hell. Exactly. So, bad news. Mm -hmm. Our three major suspects are on the lam. But good news, they've got DNA. Yeah. While looking for the three men, 
Police collect several DNA samples from other men at the apartment complex, as well as her male co-workers at the Wings and More. Almost 50 people gave DNA. Not one of them matched. Eventually, detectives found Spencer, who had gone to his parents' home in Wimberley, which is a two- to three-hour drive from Brian, according to Google Maps. Okay. When asked why he had skipped town, Spencer replied that he just wanted to be with his family. Which, honestly, I can understand why he would want to do that. I mean, the person that he had been dating since high school is killed. Mm-hmm. I honestly can't say what I would do in that situation. No. Well, anyway, Spencer completely cooperated with the authorities. He answered their questions without the presence of an attorney, willfully gave his DNA, and even allowed the investigators to take pictures of him without a shirt on. Okay. He had zero scratch marks on him. Okay. Meanwhile, authorities located Sean Stevens, the creepy neighbor, if you remember. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had gone to his parents' home in Oklahoma. Stevens claimed that he had gone home to visit his brother, who had just returned home on leave while serving with the military in Iraq. Okay. Sean willingly gave a DNA sample and let them take pictures of him as well. He also had no visible scratches. So we're two down, one to go. Yeah. All that's left now is to find Jeremy Rosser, the maintenance man. Detectives were eventually able to get in contact with his ex-wife, who explained why their marriage ended in the first place. And hold on, because this one's a doozy. Mm -hmm. According to her, one night, the two had gotten into an argument when all at once, Jeremy knocks her to the ground, gets on top of her, and begins choking her. Oh. His behavior becoming increasingly violent is what eventually led his wife to file for divorce. This incident also occurred around the same time frame of Jenna's murder. She was able to help them locate Jeremy. Now, I'd like to point out that at this time, Jeremy had no criminal record. So, up until this point... He had the lowest possibility out of the three main suspects of being the killer, according to the police. Yeah. So when Rosser was questioned, he was said to be very calm, was happy to cooperate, and of course, denied any involvement. He allowed police to search his vehicle, where they made a couple of interesting discoveries. Okay. One being a computer that, once the serial numbers were ran, was discovered to have been reported stolen a few months earlier by someone at the apartment complex. And here's the creepy part. He also still had keys to the apartments. Yeah. Even Mm -hmm. after he was terminated already. He still had keys to certain rooms. Um, however, Jenna's key was not with the ones in Jeremy's possession. 
Jeremy gave a DNA test willfully, so all that was left was to wait for the results to come back. So if we may do this Mari style, okay. we're trying to find the owner of the DNA sample found on Jenna. Mm-hmm. So first we start with the boyfriend, okay. Spencer. Yes. Spencer Hood. In the case of the DNA found on Jenna, you are not the owner. Next up, we have Sean Stevens. Okay. Creepy shirtless dude. Okay. Sean, in the case of the DNA, you are not the owner. Okay. And last but not least, Jeremy Rosser. Creepy maintenance dude. In the case of the DNA, you are the owner. I knew it. (laughs) So, when the investigators asked him how his skin cells would have ended up under her nails, Rosser replies, and this baffled me, Uh quote, I have no idea. A handshake? I'm not sure, end quote. That's not how a handshake works. I mean, unless it's some sort of weird secret handshake, but somehow I doubt that, and so did the cops. Yeah. They went on to ask how the blood got on her shirt, but he really didn't want to talk anymore at this point. And what got me about this conversation is that how calm he was when he asked the detectives... So I'm under arrest then? Uh, Duh. Well, that is correct. (laughs) He was arrested and charged with Jenna's murder and burglary. His bill was set at $225,000. Now, the prosecution theorized the following. So on the night of the murder, Jeremy broke into Jenna's apartment while she was at work and hid in the guest bedroom. When Jenna walked in and Spencer was with her, this may have thrown off any plans he had, but he decided to wait. So he waited the three hours until Spencer left, and after he had called around 12.47 a.m. Then Jenna went to bed, and that's when Jeremy went after her. She tried to defend herself... But he ultimately strangled her to death. But Jenna defending herself is what eventually led to identifying her killer. Good job, Jenna. Good job, Jenna. When Jeremy was arrested, he pleaded guilty to, quote, spare his family the ordeal of a trial, end quote. That's his words. Oh, my God. And because he pled guilty, he didn't have to give a motive. Mm-hmm. Now, I'll explain this here. Uh, although it's frustrating that he did not give a motive, it's not required. All the prosecution has to do is prove that he's guilty. Yeah. But as a true crime fan, it ticks me off. Yeah. Because, I mean, I'm sure the family wants to know. Yeah. Because, I mean, what's the one thing you ask? Why? Exactly. I mean, it, and, and that's... That's just a cheap way out, I think. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so he didn't give a motive. Now, the detectives on the case, Detective Matthews and Detective Fry, 
both gave their opinions as to what actually happened. Okay. And I'm going to I'm going to give them to you and I want to hear what you have to say. Oh, okay. Okay. So Detective Matthews stated that he believed that Jeremy was there to burglarize the apartment. But then Jenna woke up, so he killed her to, you know, try to keep her from being able to identify him. Mhm. Detective Fry, on the other hand, had a different theory. He told Forensic Files that Jenna looked similar in build to Jeremy's ex-wife and that he assaulted Jenna due to his anger toward his ex-wife. Mm. Now, which theory do you think makes more sense? Well, I mean, he has a history of breaking into other apartments yeah. and stealing their stuff. Right. So I would go with the first theory. Yeah, the the, bur- the burglary. The burglary. And that's the one that made the most sense to me out of the two. Um, but I would like to offer a third theory. Okay. And this is just a random one, but you know how he went into the apartment before. Mm-hmm. I don't believe that that was an accident. No. I believe he intentionally went in. Now, I don't know if he went in with the intention of burglarizing or if he had been scoping out Jenna for a while and saw this as maybe a chance to, you know, get her. Yeah. Like I said, I don't know, uh, but I do not believe that the previous events when she found him and uh, when she got out of the shower, I don't believe that was an accident at all. But anyway, as part of his plea agreement, Rosser was sentenced to 55 years in prison. During the hearing, Rosser didn't say much. Um, he did acknowledge his family who, who were there. Mm-hmm. Um, but he did everything he could to avoid eye contact from the 50 or so friends and family of Jenna in attendance. According to an article in The Eagle, Jenna's mother ordered Jeremy to look at her during her victim's impact statement. Oh, she should have. Yeah. And basically said that she doubted that he felt any type of regret. Mm-hmm. She also stated, quote, You will probably never comprehend what you did to my family. End quote. Jenna's sister also spoke and said, quote, I commit to forgiving you, and I commit to praying for you and hoping that you might find the ability to be sorry. End quote. Which, if I may say, is admirable. Mm-hmm. But if something like that happened to my sister, any of them, but especially this one, uh-huh. you don't even have to worry about the law coming after you. Yeah. No, boo-boo. I'm coming for you, and hell's coming with me. Jenna's father told Rosser, quote, I want you to know that every time you move from a prison to another prison, I will come and meet with the warden to let him know about the monster that you are. I will be at your parole hearing to make sure you aren't out in 27 and a half years. Rosser will be eligible for parole after serving half of his sentence. According to publicpolicerecord.com, he's serving his sentence 
at Brazos County Detention Center in Bryan. And that is the tragic case of Jenna Verhalla. Okay, so, Carrie, do you have anything else you'd like to add? Um, yeah, for starters, uh... April Fools! <laughs> we got you, didn't we? <laughs> okay, so, for the record, I'm not Brittany. And I'm not Carrie. We're actually, I'm Joey. I'm Anna. And we come from the podcast, Blood is Thicker. Brittany and Carrie are friends of ours. We've worked with them in the past. And mm -hmm. the four of us got together and we came up with the idea, as an April Fool's Day joke, why don't we just swap shows? <laughs> so, if you missed them this week, and I know you did because they are awesome, head on over to our channel, Blood is Thicker, colon, a true crime podcast, and listen to our episode featuring them. Now, this was a lot of fun. Yes, it was. Once again, we would like to thank Lone Star 187 for allowing us to commandeer their show this week. Mm -hmm. And we look forward to working with them again. Indeed we do. So, that's going to be it for us. So until the next Joey, one... Joey! What? This isn't our show. Uh, oh yeah. Well. Well, rest in peace, Jenna. Indeed. I'm Joey. And I'm Anna. Bye, y'all.